Good morning. Today we have two readings from scripture. Our first reading comes from the book of Psalms, uh, Psalm number 13. And our second reading continues uh, from Paul's letter to the Philippians. So the first reading, Psalm 13. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes, or I will sleep in death and my enemy will say, I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. And then from Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you, or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, David, and good morning, everyone. My name's Nat Rosner. I'm one of the ministers here at St. Jude's. I'm very new, though, so if you haven't seen me around that's probably why. This is just my third Sunday here. It's been lovely over the last three weeks to start getting to know you, some of you, and this community. It's been lovely to work with the staff team and start getting to know them, to feel the rhythm of this community a little bit. And I've really enjoyed over the last few weeks being able to get together with some of you for coffee and a chat. That's just been really lovely. I'd really like to keep doing that, so please reach out if you'd like to go for a walk together, if you'd like to meet for a coffee. I'm really happy to come to you wherever you are, to your home, or if you can carve out time at work for a coffee break or a lunch break, I'd be happy to meet you there. I'd also be really happy to come along to your connect group, so please reach out if that would work as well. As I've started here at St. Jude's, I've been really thankful for a long break over summer. I had a lot of annual leave accrued and apparently that all had to be taken before I started here. And so I had eight weeks off, which was amazing. Three and a half weeks of that, we were away together as a family and we managed to go back to Sydney and New South Wales to visit family and friends. Never has been getting across the border so exciting. So we had a really lovely holiday, and I don't know about you, but one of the things that I find tricky is packing for holidays. 
I have two competing aspirations. One is to be really well prepared and the other is to pack lightly. And they don't always sit well together. One of the things I love doing on holidays is reading, so I always want to make sure I'm well prepared with a good pile of books. So this is the pile of books I took away with us for three and a half weeks this summer. Can I just say my expectation that I would get through this pile of books was completely ridiculous when our main aim was to spend lots of time with family and friends. I do know my own weakness though, so in my defence I ran this pile of books past my husband Brian before we went away and he okayed it. So I left home with a clear conscience. I don't know what that says about him either. Needless to say, my reading expectations on our holiday were unmet. This passage is all about expectations. It helps us to have realistic expectations about our lives as Christians. And it also sets an expectation that God has of us as his people. So have a look with me at the passage now. You'll find it in the news sheet that you hopefully got as you came in. First of all, what should we expect of the Christian life? Let's look together at verse 29. For it, is been, it has been granted to you on behalf of, half of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Paul makes it clear that for the Christians in Philippi, the Christian life will involve both believing in Christ and also suffering for Christ. I don't think it's a surprise to any of us to hear that believing in Christ is part and parcel of the Christian life. But to hear that suffering for Christ can also be expected is more sobering. To help us understand both these elements, we're going to take a little peek into chapter 2 and we'll hear more from Alex about this next week. So reading from chapter 2, verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. What a beautiful passage that is. Believing in Jesus means believing in Jesus' life story. It means believing that Jesus is God, that he willingly became a servant, that he lived on earth as a man, that he humbled himself and became obedient to death on a cross, and that he has now been raised by God to rule over all. Although there's much more that could be said, this is the heart of what it means to believe in Jesus. And the Christian life involves living this story. Ben Witherington puts it well. 
The gospel is the retelling of the story of Jesus and the pattern of that story is meant to be replicated as the life pattern of Jesus' followers. It's important to notice that Paul in this passage isn't talking about suffering in general. He's not talking about the suffering that might come through sickness, say, or through natural disasters. Rather, what's in mind here is suffering precisely because we are Christians, suffering for Jesus, as Paul puts it in verse 29. And I wonder if you noticed how Paul introduces this pattern of the Christian life. It has been granted to you. The Greek word used here means a gift of God's grace. It's about a gift freely given or as a favor. And again, we're used to this way of thinking about the gift of faith in Jesus. And what a beautiful gift that is from God. But to think of suffering as a gift from God seems perverse. If suffering is a gift, it feels like the kind of gift that you want to re-gift or return to the store. We need to understand though that Paul doesn't call suffering for Jesus a gift because it's good. It's not good. But he calls it a gift because of what God can do with that suffering. It's a gift because God can use it for our good and for his glory. We see this elsewhere in the New Testament, especially in Romans 5, we read this. Paul says, we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So God can bring good out of our suffering. But even having said all of this, the idea that living for Jesus might involve suffering is still hard to stomach, I think. And there are two issues that I would like to flag around our discomfort with this prospect. The first is the attitude of Western culture to pain. Anthropologists sometimes characterize human cultures according to frameworks that drive behavior and values. So one scheme suggests that Western cultures are structured around innocence and guilt, that Arab and Asian cultures are structured around honor and shame, and that animist cultures are structured around fear and power. Some of you will know David Williams, who's at St. Andrew's Hall with CMS, and he suggests that Western cultures have undergone a real paradigm shift uh, over the last little while. In place of the guilt and innocence worldview, David thinks we now increasingly subscribe to a pain and pleasure framework for living. And so that means uh, people in our society make decisions based around what feels good to us and what makes us happy. So our identity is around being a pleasure seeker or a pain avoider. I think that makes a lot of sense in our culture today when we look around and see how people are making decisions. And if we live in a culture of pain avoiders, then our aversion to suffering for Jesus is really understandable. This passage calls us to recalibrate our attitude to possible suffering for Christ. God looks at such suffering from a completely different perspective 
than that of our world. I think we also sometimes feel unsettled by the idea of suffering because we forget where we are up to in the Jesus story. We're tempted to leap to the end. When Jesus will return, there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and there, will, there won't be any more suffering. But we are not there yet, even though we know that will be the end of the story. Think back to the Ashes series over summer. I don't know how many of you are cricket followers. Uh, I admit to being a cricket tragic, love test cricket, even more than Big Bash. And over the summer, it was great to have the Ashes happening again. After the third test match, Australia was up 3-0. We knew the result of the series. Uh, the, the English team could not win the series. But it wasn't time to present the trophy and crack open the champagne yet. Even though we knew that Australia had won the series, the remaining two test matches had to be played out. It's a little bit like that with where we sit in history at the moment. At this point in history, we are still in the middle of the Jesus story. Suffering is part of that story now for many Christians. But we can be confident persevering because we know the end of the story when Jesus will return. Friends, a gap between our expectations of the Christian life and the reality of the Christian life is where disappointment with God lies. Paul offers a realistic calibration of what we should expect of the Christian life. Yes, it's about believing in Jesus, but for the, for the Philippians and countless other Christians over the centuries, the Christian life has also included suffering for Jesus. This doesn't mean all Christians will suffer, but we shouldn't be surprised if we do one day suffer for our faith. Many have written about what they see as increasing opposition to the gospel in the West over the past 20 or 30 years. Tom Wright has a little commentary on the book of Philippians that he wrote in 2002. And he wrote then of the powerful forces of skepticism and cynicism within Western culture opposing the Christian faith. I think in some ways there's been growing anger in Western cultures at the heritage that Christian faith has left. Perhaps some of that anger is justified, some of it probably isn't. For some people, I think there's been a deliberate turning away from that heritage, from the faith, uh, from the Christian faith. I think there's also a growing desire to write a new narrative for Western culture that separates itself from Christian faith. I don't know what your experience has been. Perhaps you have faced opposition because you are a Christian. Maybe you've had experiences like that in the workplace, maybe in your family or among your social circles, maybe as part of community groups that you're in, maybe at uni or school. Maybe one day that kind of opposition will turn to suffering in Australia. If it does, Paul urges us here not to be surprised. This is part of what we're to expect as people who are followers of Jesus living his story. This is part of God's gift to us and we're encouraged to keep believing in Jesus even if we suffer for him. 
So with this expectation of the Christian life in mind, let's look back at verse 27. There we find what God expects of us as those who believe in Jesus. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Whatever happens is a little phrase that flags that something important is about to be said. And that's the sense of the Greek word here, although I think the Greek word is even more urgent. The word is literally only. Some translations say just one thing, which I think captures the urgency of the word. Brian and I had a short engagement, 11 weeks. And over that time, there really was literally just one thing that we were doing. We were preparing for our wedding and everything else had to fit in around that. Athletes preparing for the Olympics literally have just one thing that shapes their whole life. From what I've heard, doing a PhD can sometimes become periods of just this one thing that people are concentrating on. Maybe you've had an experience in your life of just one thing that has dominated for a period of time. Often these focus times are transitional or they have a deadline. And we live in a transitional time in the story of Jesus. We live in the space between Jesus' resurrection and his return. So verse 27 calls us to focus our lives. God calls us to just one thing while we wait. And that one thing is to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So given this one thing is so important, let's unpack it a little. So to start with, living in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ doesn't mean living sinlessly or perfectly. You won't have to know me long before you see that that doesn't happen in my life. And uh, my guess is uh, your life doesn't look perfect or sinless either. The sense here is of walking with a clear conscience before God, knowing that we can go to him asking for forgiveness and we will be forgiven. The sense is of representing the gospel of Christ well, even if not perfectly. Living in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ also doesn't mean earning our salvation, being good enough for God so that he will then love us. By the very structure of this sentence, the gospel news of God's love for us in Christ comes first. And living in a manner worthy of the gospel is a response to God's love for us. But what does it mean to do this, to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ? The word translated conduct ourselves has the idea of being citizens included in it. It's about public behavior. So the Christian Standard Bible translates verse 27 like this, just one thing, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. And Tom Wright has a similar translation. This is his own translation. The one thing I would stress is this. Your public behavior must match up to the gospel of the king. And Paul echoes the, this idea later in Philippians. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20, he says, Our citizenship is in heaven. I mentioned a few weeks ago that I was born in South Africa. 
My family moved to Sydney when I was five and we eventually became Australian citizens. At that time, you couldn't have dual Australian and South African citizenship, so we gave up our South African citizenship. And that change in citizenship really necessitated a change in behaviour. Some things were little, some things were big. We learnt that in the fruit and veggie shop you asked for mandarins, not for nachis. We learnt that there were different cultural expectations. Most homes in Sydney didn't have really high walls and armed response that arrived at your gates when your burglar alarm went off. There were some cultural expectations that we haven't really met as we've become Australian citizens. Vegemite apparently is fantastic, but our family really hasn't managed to acclimatise to that taste. Citizenship in many ways determines behaviours. Christians are citizens of heaven, called by God to live in a manner worthy of that citizenship, to live in a manner worthy of the life story of Jesus. And this has a public element. We're used to the idea that particular behaviour is expected of people who have a public role. So in the media over the last few months, we've heard questions like, what behaviour should we expect of the Australian cricket captain? What behaviour should we expect of a professional tennis player? What behaviour should we expect of the Australian of the year? The question Paul raises here is how should Christians behave publicly given that we are citizens of heaven? And the answer is in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And Paul goes on now to help us to understand how we can live in that way, how we can fulfil that expectation. Before we have a look at that though, let's uh, just take stock now of where we've, on where we've come. We've heard that the Christian life is one of believing in Jesus and also possibly suffering for Jesus. And we've heard God's call to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. I wonder how you feel sitting with that. Personally, I find this call inspiring, but also overwhelming. And I find the prospect of suffering quite daunting. In the face of opposition to Christian faith, I feel tempted to step down, to back down. In the face of opposition to the Christian faith, it can be tempting to feel isolated. And in the face of opposition, I'm tempted to feel fearful. So it's incredibly encouraging that as Paul fleshes out what it looks like to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, that he addresses these temptations. Paul calls us to stand firm rather than to back down. He calls us to strive together as one rather than to feel isolated. And he calls us not to be frightened when we are tempted to feel fearful. So let's have a look at the second half of verse 24. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in, one, in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. The primary image here is of standing firm. 
If you look at the passage in the NIV, you'll see that there's a footnote there indicating that the Greek could say, standing firm in the one capital S spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, or standing firm in one small s spirit, that's uh, standing together in one spirit. And to be honest, both are true. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 has both of these. It refers to sharing in the spirit, Holy Spirit, and being one in small s spirit. So whichever way we go with that in verse 27, I think the, the image here is clear. It's about not backing down. It's about holding the line together. It reminds me of being at the beach and standing in the waves. And as the waves come in, uh, they lap over your legs. And then as the tide recedes, you feel that tug on your legs. And if the tide is really strong, then your feet dig down into the sand and you have to pull back a bit against the tide. If a small child is there, they need an adult to hold them firm so that they can resist the tug of the waves drawing them back into the water. We need each other as followers of Jesus to stand firm as we face the tug of the tide of culture. This calls for real spiritual tenacity. When we are going against the flow of culture, we have to struggle. It requires a conscious, thoughtful effort, a prayerful effort. To help us do this, Paul identifies two parts to standing firm together for Jesus. One is striving together as one for the faith of the gospel in the second half of verse 27. This is an image of united and energetic teamwork. It reminds me of the way that Ash Barty spoke about her team when she won the Australian Open earlier this year. As you look from the outside, winning a, a singles Grand Slam tennis championship seems pretty much the most individual sporting achievement that you could make. But the way Ash spoke about it was always about her team, how they had worked together for victory. The commentators commented on this. They noticed the striking way that Ash spoke about the unity of her team, how this was a victory for her team. Thinking about unity as Christians is always tricky, isn't it? Clearly, the unity Paul talks about here is a unity shaped by the faith of the gospel. Lynn Coick helpfully says, this doesn't mean all Christians thinking the same on every specific point of doctrine. Rather, this is about holding a singular passion for the advancement of the gospel. And for this to work, Christians need to trust each other. We need to be trustworthy. We need to, be, uh, to think charitably about other believers and be faith-filled and grace-filled. Friends, my hope and prayer for us here at St. Jude's is that we will have a singular passion for the advancement of the gospel together and that we will work together with other Christians for that same passion. Striving together for the faith of the gospel is the first part of standing firm. The second part of standing firm together for Jesus is living without fear, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This feels like a real challenge to me. But Paul has already talked about this idea in chapter one. In verse 14, he said, because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Perhaps an unexpected result 
of Paul being in prison. And then in verse 20, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage now so that now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Courage comes when we know who we belong to and when we remember what our life story is. This takes us back to the Christ hymn of chapter two, which reminds us that we follow a suffering servant. We follow a crucified Christ. If suffering is an expected part of our story, then we don't need to be frightened because we know the end of the story is vindication for all those who trust in Jesus. The second half of verse 28 is a little bit tricky, but I think what it's saying is that the very action of Christians standing firm publicly together in the gospel sends a message that we are not afraid. This action is a sign to Christians that we belong to Jesus, that we will one day be vindicated when Jesus returns and our unity in standing together for the faith is a sign to those who oppose Christian faith that a new world has begun in which the threats of the old one don't work anymore. So friends, how do we live as citizens of heaven in Melbourne in 2022? What does it look like for us to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ? Paul urges us to stand firm rather than to back down, to strive together rather than to go it alone. And he urges us to be courageous rather than fearful. So let's try now to picture a few things uh, that uh, help us to see how this might look in our lives. I'm still really new here at St. Jude's. Obviously, I don't really know you. I don't know your lives. So I would really love to hear from you some thoughts about what this might look like for you in your life right now. But here are a few ideas before I finish up. First, I think this has been a reminder for me that our Sunday gatherings are public gatherings. They remind our city that Christians are here, that we gather united in the name of Jesus. So for me, this is an encouragement for all of us to be here as much as we can. Now, I know you'll take that with a grain of salt because this is exactly what you expect a minister to say. But I think we don't often reflect on the power of the public message sent by Christian people gathering every Sunday. I love that our foyer is glass. It means that people outside the building can see that we are here. They can see that there are lots of people here. They can see that there are people here during the week as well. They can see our church is alive. Now, obviously, COVID has made church in person incredibly difficult and sometimes impossible over the last two years. And there are still complications for some people in being present personally in church at the moment. So with all of those uh, limitations in mind, let this passage be an encouragement for us to remember the public statement that we make as Christians when we gather at church and to try and do that as much as we can within our own individual circumstances. Church being a public gathering also shapes what we do when we're here and how we do it. I know that week by week, most of us here are regulars, 
But my hope and prayer is that every Sunday there will be people here who are new or visiting, that there might be people here who aren't Christians. And if that's you this morning, we are really glad that you're with us and we hope that you enjoy your morning with us today. For those of us who are regulars, this gives us an imperative, an imperative to welcome people well, to include them well in our community. Every now and then when I'm on holidays, I get to visit a different church and I'm always really interested to see whether anyone will talk to me, to see who will talk to me. Uh, Sometimes people do, uh, probably more often than you might imagine. I can go to another church and no one will say hi. For someone who isn't a Christian, that sends a really negative message about who God is and who Christians are. Our churches are public gatherings, so let's make sure that everything we do here is done in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Secondly, we spend most of our time during the week away from church in all sorts of different contexts, in the workplace, at home, at uni or school, uh, playing sport, maybe in other community groups, in all sorts of different contexts. And being a Christian in some of those contexts can be really daunting. There are potential challenges and opposition to face. So let me encourage us to be actively supporting each other in those different contexts. Make sure you have a Christian friend who you can talk to about some of the challenges you might be facing at work as a Christian. In your connect groups, be sharing with each other about what is happening in your work life or your family life, about how you can be having conversations about Jesus in those contexts. Pray for each other. Don't be alive. Uh, Don't be alone in living your Christian lives during the week. On a broader note, we know that there are Christians all around the world who are suffering for the gospel at the moment. So let's also be persevering in prayer for them. And thirdly, let's together as a community be striving for the faith of the gospel. This is such a beautifully positive and proactive idea. And even though I'm really new at St Jude's, I know there are lots of ways that we're doing this. We have Christianity Explored starting up at the beginning of March. What a great way to strive for the faith of the gospel. We have a music playgroup. We have our estates ministry. We have an Easter art show coming up. All of these are great ways that together we can strive for the gospel. So be involved if you can. Pray for those initiatives if you can. I also wanted to share with you a new initiative that I read about in the last few weeks. This is a group called Publica that launched about 10 days ago. It's a Christian organisation that is aiming to provide research and policy ideas around Uh, significant social challenges. It's headed up by Professor Patrick Parkinson, who was one of my law lecturers when I studied at Sydney Uni. And they wanna address things like the growing problem of loneliness that they've identified in Australian culture, how we can look after disadvantaged people better, how we can build caring local communities, how we can better ensure that kids grow up in safe, stable, and nurturing families. I think it's really inspiring that there's a group of Christian people who are wanting to sow positively into our Australian communities and culture. 
So I'm gonna sign up for that and there are lots of other Christian organizations doing great work in the public space. It's another way that we can live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. These ideas are really just scratching the surface. As I said, I'd love to hear any of your thoughts around this. But let me finish up now by praying for God's help as we do this. Lord God, we thank you so much for your son, Jesus. Thank you that he made himself nothing, that he took the very nature of a servant. Thank you that he humbled himself, he became obedient to death on a cross. And God, thank you that you have exalted him to the highest place. Thank you, God, that Jesus rules. And thank you that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Help us as we wait for that day, Heavenly Father, to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen.